0: Listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit SouthPoint.org. One of the movies from my childhood is Mrs. Doubtfire. And I've introduced that to my kids. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, honestly. If you're not familiar with it, Robin Williams uh, plays a guy who loses access and custody of his kids uh, in the middle of a, you know, impending divorce. In the midst of that in order for him to be able to see his kids, he becomes a female nanny. And so we have this dad who begins dressing up and puts on a bodysuit to look like a woman. Now in 2021, he probably couldn't remake this movie because they'd be like, is this a documentary? Like what's going on? But, um, you know, 20 years ago you could make this and it was, it was comedy. <laughs> and so, uh, so, uh, Robin Williams becomes this nanny so he can have access to his kids and his kids don't even know it at first. And then they walk into the bathroom and they're like, wait, you're, you're not a woman, you're a man. And you're not just a man, but you're our dad. Wow. This is awesome. So he gets to spend time with his kids right? And and we think, man, this is crazy in the end. I don't even know what happens at the end. I think in the end, uh, he gets reunited with his kids or something, right? Help me out. Okay, movie people. Okay, good. So, uh, but the point is, so uh, in the middle of that, you think, man, I would never do that, right? And, And at the same time, it's like, yeah, but in the midst of desperation, I might dress up like a woman so that I could see my kids, if that's what it meant. And that's the point of the movie. It's like, he would do anything to see his kids, Here's what I want to see this morning is that when we are at the point of desperation, we are willing to do something that may seem radical. That we may do something that we may not otherwise dream of doing. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been just so desperate? You're like, man, I, I never thought I would actually do this, but but I guess I will. Anybody been there? Maybe it's because something terrible happened in your life. And it's like, man, I, I never thought I would have to get a second mortgage on my home or I never thought I would have to move or I never thought I'd have to give away this money or I never thought I'd be stuck with whatever this is. I never thought I would lose my job. I never thought that my kid would be born sick. I never thought that this would happen to me. I never thought my parents would do this. And in the middle of that desperation, you're like, man, we've got to do whatever it takes. That desperation drives us to do things that we would otherwise never dream of. And for a lot of us, we actually want to avoid that desperation. We would rather life be comfortable. We would rather life go as planned. We would rather our kids never sin. We would rather our jobs never run out. We would rather there never be a leak in our plumbing. We would rather there never be anything that would actually go wrong. But we all reach that point. And here's where I think a lot of us are this morning is that we become so blinded by what's right in front of us, by these immediate desires, these fleeting passions that we never stop and think, what am I actually desperate for? What is my actual greatest need in life? Here's the question I want to pose to you. This is on the screen. What if your greatest need is different than your most pressing desire. I'm going to flesh that out for just a second, and then we're going to take a moment and pause, and we're going to ask God to reveal himself to us. For most of us, our most pressing desire, right now, it may be lunch. You may have skipped breakfast, and you're just like, man, I really cannot wait to go to Guthrie's for lunch and overspend for some fried chicken. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's work-related. Maybe it's... Family related, maybe it is a child, maybe it's your parents, maybe, I don't know, whatever it is. But for a minute, can we just step back and say, that, that may be my most pressing desire right now, but what is your actual greatest need? Like if we took those, those greatest desires that, are, that just keep presenting themselves to us, and like David said, if we could just kind of push those back for just a moment and peer through at the most important thing. What is your greatest need? Here's what I want us to do. I want us for a moment, I'm going to give us maybe 45 seconds. I want you right there in the stillness of this moment to ask God to reveal those two things to you. And so I'm I'm just going to step back. We're not going to have some beautiful pad music playing in the key of D. Like, it's just going to be quiet. All I want you to do is ask God to reveal those two things to you. I want you to ask him, what is your actual greatest need in this life? And then secondly, I want you to ask him, what in your life specifically do you see as your most pressing desire in the moment? Okay? Everybody good with that? So we're going to do that. I want him to speak to us even in this moment, and then we're going to dig into this passage. And we're going to desperately crowd to him. So if you want to bow your head, you can. If you want to sit there and ponder this question, um, it, whatever that is. I, I would also encourage you in the middle of this, if you're a note taker, if you're a writer downer, if you're uh, a type it on your phoner, uh, write that down. Look at that. I think that's important for us to not just take these things and, okay, interesting, all right, on to lunch. Let's take these things and ponder these things. What is your greatest need in life? And then in the moment, what is your most pressing desire? That's it. Spirit, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds. We surrender to you even in this moment now. We pray that you would move among us, your people. That you would change us. That we would be desperate for you. It's in Christ's name. Jeff read Luke chapter 5 beginning in verse 33. Go there with me again if you would. We have three sections of this passage that we're going to look at this morning. I want to keep this question in front of us as we look at Christ and as we look at those confronting and asking questions of Christ. So we begin in chapter 5, verse 33, and he begins here with this question about fasting. We see that right there in the header of this, of this section. And so we, we see in verse number 33, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink Here's what I want to see in these first seven verses is this. There is joy in the kingdom of Jesus. There is joy in the kingdom of Jesus. Amen? I, I can just pray. We can go home. <laughs> I told Jeff this morning, I said, you, you've, nobody's ever not liked a short sermon. So maybe that's it. <laughs> but there is joy in the kingdom of Jesus. We, we see a few things here. First, we see verse 33, and they. Who is the they? When I first read this passage, I was like, oh, the Pharisees, the stinking bad guys. But the, the, the they, if you look back at verse number 29, is actually the people who are at the party. We'll get to the Pharisees in just a minute when, when we get to chapter 6. But we have here these party goers. And so we have this, this party that's happening, and they're beginning to ask Jesus, wait, Jesus, your, your folks are partaking of this party, but John's disciples, they were fasting. Why is it okay for them? right? In verse 34, Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? So we have to understand this idea of fasting. Here's why fasting is important. Fasting in the Old Testament was required one day out of the year, and that was the day of atonement. When we get to the New Testament, by the time we get to the New Testament, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, most of the religious folks, they had begun fasting on Monday and Thursday, every single week. And it had become required. It was part of what they did. But Jesus here, he's not saying, well, let's keep up those traditions, those man made traditions. That was all man made. At this point, what he's saying is, yeah, keep fasting. And we see him recommending fasting at other points. We're actually going to see it in the next chapter, chapter six and chapter seven. He's going to talk about fasting. Because here's the way that fasting was supposed to be applied to the New Testament it was supposed to be voluntary. And According to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, you fast for the day of atonement. But you can fast whenever you like. But there's two main reasons that you would fast. It was not because the law told you to. Again, that's just one day out of the year. But you would fast to have a sharper, a deeper understanding, a more intimate understanding of who God was. There was one reason to fast. The second reason to fast was out of repentance, out of sin, out of sorrow, out of death. Uh, Someone close to you was sick, and they would go and they would fast at that time. That's why they would fast. But here, notice what Jesus says. Can you make wedding guests fast? So he's here at this party, and they're like, why are you not fasting? The reason he's not fasting is because it's party time. It's not fasting time. So in the Old Testament, they would fast because they were looking forward to the time when this bridegroom would show up. The bridegroom through the Old Testament, you can look at Isaiah 62, you can look at Hosea 2. It's this this picture, this image, this groom and this bride is an image of the relationship between God and his people. And if you've been around church, you're mostly familiar with that. And we have that image carried on until we get to Revelation. When we have Jesus, the groom, who comes down and gets us, the church, the bride. But notice what Jesus says right here. He says, right now, it's not time to fast. This is a time of joy. Because Jesus is saying, I am the shadow of the Old Testament. I'm the symbol that has come to fulfillment. The bridegroom is here. So we look at redemptive history. We have creation, and this is, you know, big four areas, uh, four movements of Scripture. We have creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so we're created in the image of God. We have Adam and Eve and then they sin. We have the fall a few minutes later in Genesis chapter 3. So then we have all of the Old Testament looking forward to this coming Messiah. And we've seen already Jesus is like, remember a couple weeks ago he read out of Isaiah chapter 62? He says, by the way, this is being fulfilled in your midst. Chapter 4 and verse number 19, he says, this is the day of the Lord. In other words, he's saying no more fasting, no more sorrow, no more looking ahead. He's like, look right now. I have arrived. Now is the time to party. That's what he's saying. The kingdom of God has begun. So verse 34, why are you going to make them fast when the bridegroom is with them? Here he's talking about, obviously talking about himself. It's like if you go to a birthday party for a kid or for anybody, honestly. Uh, If you go to a birthday party, and it's like, hey, time to, time to cut the dessert, time to cut the cake. And you go in, and there's actually a pile of broccoli there. You ever been to a birthday party like that, where they serve broccoli as like the treat? No, you haven't. You serve cake. Like, you're, you're, it's expected. You don't go to a birthday party, and they're like, you know what, we're not, we're not doing cake at this one. We're uh, a little, little too healthy. We're just trying some different things. You don't do that. It's inappropriate. Don't ever invite me to a party where you don't serve cake. I will leave. <laughs> like that, It's just inappropriate. You don't do that. Th- the same is true here. Is it necessarily wrong to serve broccoli at a birthday party? I guess not. <laughs> My reaction to you would be wrong. <laughs> but here Jesus is not saying, hey, do not fast ever. Fasting is wrong. Notice what Jesus says. It's inappropriate. We should be celebrating that the Messiah is here. The kingdom is here. But then notice in verse number 35, the very next verse. Jesus says, The days will come when the bridegroom, Jesus, is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. So he says, When Jesus is here, when the presence of God is here, there is joy. He's pointing here to his crucifixion, to him being rejected, to him being put on the cross. So some of you are like, well, yeah, my, my life isn't just full of joy. Jesus is not back yet for his second coming. So how do we reconcile these two things? And the early church would say the same thing because when Luke is writing this, Christ has already gone back up into heaven. We, we know from the early church in the midst of persecution, in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of calamity, in the midst of death, like we just heard about from the, the Christians, the, the missionaries that are in Haiti That's not a time, hey, sorry guys, we're up here and McDonough George is partying it up. No, we should feel for those folks. That's why we pray for them. We should be fasting over those things because there is sorrow now. And so we have the vantage of looking back at Luke chapter 5 and also looking forward. But notice when Jesus is here, he said, yeah, there's going to be a time for fasting. 2021, this is a time for fasting. Verse number 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the old, from the new will not match the old. So, so we have here, we have these two pictures. What Jesus is not doing, he's not saying, hey, let's take the old covenant and the new covenant and let's make every comparison possible. He's not, he's not teaching some theological treatise on his fulfillment of the law. He's not. That's why he's teaching in parables. And that's why he doesn't go on to explain the parables necessarily. He's like, let me just give you this, and then we're going to get back to the old wine. That's what he does. We're going to get back to the good stuff. You can keep reading to the end of the chapter if you want to. That's where he gets to. But here's what he's saying. He's saying there's this old garment, there's this new garment. This patch from the old garment, you can't put it on the new garment. From the new garment, you can't put it on the old garment and think it's going to work. Then he says in verse number 37, and no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be must be put into fresh wine skins. Here's what that means: if you if you go buy a um, a new shirt mostly. Now this was like, you know, early 2000s, you would try to get it, you know, tattered and you do like the torn off stuff, you do the patched and the, um, you know, the stuff that has cuts and that kind of thing. But mostly today, we don't do that. We don't go buy new stuff and then cut it and then patch it up. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And in the same way, uh, in the Old Testament, what they would do is they would put this wine in these wine skins. And as that wine, as that grape juice would ferment into wine, it would release gases and those gases, if they were put into an old wineskin, or if they were put into a new wineskin, they would, they would burst it because it was just expanding, expanding, expanding. So he says, you can't just swap these things willy-nilly as you want. Now notice who's he, who he's talking to here. He, he's talking to these partygoers, but we know that there are Pharisees on the prowl. So he's saying, you can't have this old way of living and this new hope that I'm bringing and keep both of these things in tow. So he's speaking to religious people saying, "I didn't come to patch up your efforts of getting to God. I'm not here just as an addendum to your life. You're not going to take this old mold of living and try to squeeze me into it. You're not going to take your traditions and make me a part of them." He says, "I'm a brand new garment. I'm I'm this new wine." and it's going to wreck everything else. You can't squeeze me into your life. That's essentially what he's saying. You can't take your current way of living and think, you know what? I'm just going to add a little bit of Jesus to that, and maybe he'll make things taste a little better. No. He says, this is, this is brand new. This is a new way of living. This is a new life. I'm talking here about eternal hope, that's, and that's what fasting was. Fasting was this longing for something better, something new, something renewed, something restored. And he's saying here, yeah, you're talking about me. I am the one who is bringing you joy. This is a brand new kingdom. This is not a kingdom of the old regime. This is a new kingdom, and I'm the new king. And in my kingdom, there is joy because there is rest, there is peace, there is power. So Jesus is here pointing to himself. We can't squeeze Jesus into our dreams. We can't take Jesus and try to put him into our preferences. But we do. I know for me, here's something that I've been struggling with this past week, the past two weeks is I want to take everything Jesus and use it as a brick in this wall of Michael Powell's kingdom. Now, there are other bricks in here. Maybe it's my ability to play music. or Maybe it's my how much money I have in the bank. Or maybe it's my um, you know, uh, dashing good looks. Or uh, I don't know why y'all are laughing about that. <laughs> or maybe it's my uh, ability to communicate, or maybe it's my uh, ability to lead, or maybe it's my ability to, to play with my kids, or it's athletic ability, or whatever it is. And what, I'm, what I've done for 37 years is build my kingdom. And can I tell you something, friends? In my kingdom, there is no joy. In my kingdom... You may tell you what is is the language. It's not love. It's sarcasm. As the king of my kingdom, my ultimate goal is not for those who are serving me. It's for them to serve me. And so they know more about how good I am. He says here he says, "There is joy in my kingdom." And this isn't in my notes. I am sick and tired of living for my kingdom and building my kingdom. Because when I look around at the relationships in my life, all I do is suck the good out of those relationships. I am not life giving. Shannon, I'm sorry. I've spent years loving you the way that I want to love you. And I repent of that. Actually, I repent to you in Kingston. For not loving you the way that God wants me to love you. I repent to the staff that I work with. Chris is back there serving kids. I've used him for my kingdom. I've not loved him well. I repent to the folks I've played music with for years, especially you, Jake. It's been for Michael Powell's kingdom. And it's not a joyful place to live. I don't know that. I repent to y'all for the way that I've kept you at arm's distance rather than loving you well. I, and I'm sick of it. P- people get they get mad about a lot of stuff. It's a church, right? And that's okay. I'm gonna repent of them too. We're not perfect. I'm tired of living in an echo chamber that, that is, I wanna surround myself with people who wanna tell me how good I am. And I'm, I'm done with that. A couple weeks ago in my life group, somebody said, they asked me, they said, what is your number one area of sin? And I said, I'm gonna let my wife answer. And that is a gutsy move. (laughs) And she said, Michael is never wrong. I said, let me clarify that. (laughs) I said, I think the word you're looking for is self-righteousness. That's my struggle. And my fear is that when I die, whether it's on the way home or when I'm 110 years old, is that what I'm going to be known for is everything else, every other brick in my kingdom that I've built. And it's not going to be known. I'm not going to be known and remembered by the way that I loved people with the love that I was shown in Jesus. And I don't want to live a life like that where I'm scared of dying like that. I sat with a lady this week who's literally on her deathbed. And she said, she said, I'm not scared of dying. She said, I know where I'm going. And she was sitting there in tears, and I was in tears. And she's lived a good long life, just turned 80. She said, I'm not scared of dying. I know where I'm going. But I'm scared for others in my family who don't know where they're going. And I thought, what a woman of God who is committed to finding her joy in the kingdom of God and her concern as she is about to pass from one life to the next is that the glory of God would be made known. Not that people would look at her and be like, wow, you lived a great life. Look at your kids. Look at your grandkids. Look at your great ki- grandkids. This is amazing. Look at this legacy. Her concern is for the souls of those around her. That's the life that I want to live. I don't care where that is. I don't care what that means for me. I, I, don't, I don't care if you're sitting there thinking, man, this guy is a fool. That's fine. It does not bother me. I sat with a couple brothers this week over tacos, and I said, I don't, I'm, I'm done caring if people look at me if I raise my hands while I'm singing. I said, I, I'm done caring if people look at me if I, if I kneel and pray. I'm done. Their opinion of me does not matter as much as the opinion of the creator of the universe. And that's the kingdom that I want to build is his. There is joy in that kingdom. And I would invite you to come along with me. Let's build his kingdom. People love Chris. People left the church because he wasn't preaching anymore because they don't like me. <laughs> because he's so lovable. When people see me coming in the room, and maybe this is true for you, when they see, are, are they like, wow, I'm really glad to see this person? Or are they like me when I walk into a room, my wife says, oh, I got to kind of be on eggshells. I don't know what kind of mood you're going to be in. When my kids see me, they're Looking like this, is he he mad dad? Is he glad dad? What kind of dad do we get today? Is my dog looking at me like, is he going to be upset? Is he going to holler, you know? And I want to be a husband, a father, a pastor, a friend who is loving you, loving those around me for the sake of the kingdom of God. And I want the joy of Christ to exude from every part of my being. The reason I'm saying that to you this morning is so that you will hold me accountable to that and so that you'll go on that trip with me. Life is short. There is joy in the kingdom of Jesus. Luke begins chapter 6, and he says this. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some grains, some heads of grain. Now, when we see this, the big idea here that we're going to see in these next few verses is that there is freedom... There is freedom in the presence of Jesus. There is freedom in the presence of Jesus. We're no longer constrained, but there is freedom in his presence. Now, notice we have uh, this contrast, this paradox, this juxtaposition here of Christ and the Pharisees. And it gets stronger and stronger and stronger and a little bit stranger and stranger as we go through these next 11 verses. But notice here he's walking through this grain field, which means they're in a rural area. There's nobody around. But notice the Pharisees show up in just a second. What does that mean the Pharisees are doing? Are they doing Pharisee kind of stuff around where the Pharisees work and live? No, they're doing like PI kind of stuff out in the rural places. And they're stalking Jesus literally around these grain stalks. But they're out here stalking Jesus, trying to figure out, is he doing what he's not supposed to be doing? Are they, are, is he breaking uh, our rules, the rules we've made for the Sabbath? These are the kind of folks that Jesus is dealing with. Now, Pharisees and scribes, here's the best way I can think of them, because they, they, I think they get a really bad rap a lot of times. And sometimes maybe it's too bad, and sometimes we focus on the wrong things. But, but here's, here's the bad part of Pharisees and scribes, Sadducees, those kinds of folks, is they offer wrong thoughts on how to follow Jesus. That's the problem, is they're not saying, here's what Jesus said, follow him in this way. They're like, yeah, here's what Jesus said, now let's try to follow him in a different way. And sometimes those ways look okay, but they're not because it's not the way that Jesus had to follow him. They want to make everything, they want to make your life a paint by numbers. So here's what it means to follow Jesus is put uh, yellow every time you see the number four and put an orange on the number six and they want everybody's life to look the same. Rather than saying, man, we are all created in the image of God. We've all got our problems. We've all got our strengths. We've all got our weaknesses. And in some way, we all glorify God together. That's not what a legalist says. A legalist says, I want you to look just like me. That's what the Pharisees are saying here. Now, notice how they mess up the Sabbath. So on the Sabbath, now, before we talk about how they mess up the Sabbath, we understand the Sabbath. Now, if you broke the Sabbath, it was punishable by death. It's a big deal in the Old Testament. So we're not, it's not a trifling thing. But here's what the Pharisees did is they took the law of the Sabbath. Hey, don't work on the Sabbath. Glorify God. And they had this book called the Mishnah. Everybody say Mishnah. Mishnah. Okay, make sure you're still with me. And they added 39 rules about the Sabbath, 39 things you could not do on the Sabbath. Some of those things had to do with how far you could walk, how much you could walk, how big your steps had to be, if you could cook or not, if you could build a fire. How did you build a fire? When I was in Israel back in 2005, there was actually an elevator there, and we were there on a Sabbath, And uh, right beside the wailing wall, and there was a a building there beside it, and there was what was called the Shabbat elevator, okay? In other words, the Sabbath elevator. And on the Sabbath, this Shabbat elevator would stop at every single floor, and it was like a four or five-story building, and this elevator would stop at every single floor. And the reason for that was so that the Jews would not have to hit a button and select their floor. You think I'm kidding? It's probably still there. I mean, It's crazy. Uh, so they wouldn't hit a button. Now, there was a Gentile elevator right beside it, and that's what I wrote. uh, but, But they don't want to do any sort of work at all. They added all of these laws on top of the Old Testament law, but the law was not meant to keep us from God. The law was meant so that we could experience God. The law communicated who God was, and how we were to enter into relationship with him. The law was supposed to create rest for us. It was supposed to create space for us to worship. It was supposed to create a place of reprieve, not of repression. It was supposed to fill the soul. That's the point of Sabbath, of rest, to fill the soul, not to empty it. Now, the Sabbath went from the seventh day to the first day, because that's the day that Jesus rose from the grave. But I would encourage you with this. The Sabbath was a gift to Israel in the same way that Sundays are a gift to the church. Rest is a gift to the church. What gets in the way of that? The immediate desire, what your most pressing desire in the moment, it may be how much work you have. I would encourage you, if you are unable to rest in Christ with your family and point your family to that ultimate true rest in Christ because you're bringing home work, because you can't get away from the office, because you've got to answer that phone call. I know I'm stepping on toes, I'm meddling, and I'm also preaching to the choir. If if that is your life, if you cannot get away from that work, I would challenge you and say, we've got to be pointing our families to rest in Christ. Gathering with the family of God is one of the ways that we do that. This is life-giving. If we're not valuing rest... In this life, in a physical way and in a spiritual way, it's going to affect our souls. So here we have to understand Sabbath before we understand. Here's what the Pharisees said. So he's walking through this grain field. Look at verse number three. Some of the Pharisees said, What are you doing? What is not why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them: Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? and he and those who were with him and he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those with him. Now, you got to go back to First Samuel chapter 21 and see this. But David before he was king was running from Saul, running for his life. He winds up at the tabernacle and he his him and his folks are famished and they have this bread there, the bread of the presence, also known as the show bread, and it's sitting there on the ark of the covenant and David eats the bread. Here's what's interesting. You're like, ooh, bad move. The Bible never condemns David for doing that. Never. Old Testament, New Testament. Here he doesn't do it. And Jesus actually says, man, bread is bread. The law is not meant to keep food from the hungry. The law is meant to point us to God, the giver of good things. The Pharisees, they didn't like that very much. So here's what Jesus says. Verse 5 and he jesus said to them the son of man is lord of the sabbath we see this phrase son of man is used 83 times in the new testament 78 of those times jesus uses it of himself He gets this from Daniel chapter seven. If you go back, I want to encourage you, Daniel chapter seven, great chapter right there, a pivotal chapter in the book going into chapter eight. But Daniel seven is talking about this ancient of days, the son of man who is coming with full authority and full power, full deity. And this is the name that Jesus most often uses for himself. He says, I am the son of man. And we think that that sounds like a lot of humanity. It is, but understand that it comes from Daniel seven Jesus is saying, I am full humanity, and I am full deity. This is my essence. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, when was the Sabbath created? Who knows? Creation, Creation, yeah. When I thought, okay, Lord of the Sabbath, Sabbath, and I'm not the brightest bulb in the box, but I thought, okay, so it's been around since Sinai, you know, Ten Commandments, Honor the, the Sabbath, I thought, no. We've got this creation mandate to rest on the seventh day. We work for six, not for 40 hours. We work for six days, and then we rest on the seventh. And Jesus is saying here, I'm not going to be trapped as creator of the Sabbath. You're not going to tell me about the Sabbath. He says, I'm the one who created it. It's for me. It's for my people so they can know me. He's not going to be trapped by it. Uh, and I would ask this, if we can consider the Sabbath... But he's pointing here. He's saying, I am Lord of all things. I'm Lord of every area of life, of the things you do, of what happens to you, of the good things that you experience, of the rest that you take. And I would ask you, how do you respond to the Lordship of Jesus Christ over every area of your life? And this would go for a lot of us who are struggling in particular areas of sin. And you know it's sin because the Lordship of Jesus Christ would require you not to look at that or not to spend your money on that or not to speak that way or not to meditate on those thoughts or not to go there. So if you know Jesus is Lord over all those areas, do you make excuses for those things or do you pursue holiness? Because in pursuing holiness, we experience freedom. In Jesus, and that's the point of for this passage. In the presence of Jesus, there is freedom. He is the Lord of all. Then we get to this last section. Here's what I want to see from this: is that there is healing in the name of Jesus. There is healing in the name of Jesus. So on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there with his right hand withered, and the scribes and Pharisees again. The arch nemesis watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. Now, notice their, their intentions are very clear here by the author Luke. No, notice their intentions are they want to find something wrong with Jesus. There's this confirmation bias that's happening. We're going to find something. We, we know he disagrees with us, and so we know he's wrong, uh, so we just got to find the reasons for it. That's all they're doing, stalking in the grain fields, trying to find out if he's going to heal somebody on the Sabbath. But, but again, I told you there was this, this dichotomy between these two groups, these Pharisees and the Savior of the world. Notice where that apprehensive nature, where that accusatory nature gets them. So they're, they're looking for him, looking for a reason to accuse him. But look at verse number 11. But they were filled with fury after he heals this guy, and they discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So compassion was the problem for the legalists. They were so pure that they couldn't even have compassion on a guy whose hand was withered. They were such good people. They were so religious. They had everything together, at least externally, that they couldn't rub a couple of heads of grain together on the Sabbath, but they could plot Jesus' execution. That's how religious they were. Wow, congratulations, guys. Notice what Christ does. Verse number 8, right there in the middle of that. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, talking to the Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? What do the Pharisees say? (laughs) After looking around at them, I imagine he asked that question. He's just like, you're not even Pharisees and you feel awkward, you know? He says, what am I supposed to do here? After looking around at them all, he said to them, he said to him, stretch out your hand the man stretched out his hand and his hand was restored so we have here in this in this image imagine these pharisees these scribes and they're like we're looking for a reason to accuse jesus we just know he's going to be nice to somebody we know he's going to be compassionate and then he does let's kill him we have Jesus on the other side. Now notice, this is, we, we talked about how this is pointing to Jesus' death. They're, they're like, okay, we got to start planning this. But notice, this is just a microcosm of the character and nature of God. Again, pointing us to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because here we have the love and mercy and grace of Jesus on display to this man with a withered hand. But, but notice, it's not just here that we have the love and mercy and grace on display. But eventually, Jesus is put to death at the hand of sinners. He's beaten. There's a crown of thorns that's put on his head. He's mocked. He's further accused. He's condemned. His blood is shed. His skin is torn from his back. His beard is plucked from his face. He is beyond recognition, even by those who are closest to him. He takes his cross. After being nailed to it, there's vinegar mixed with urine that's being shoved in his face. And what does he do? He continues to show the same love, grace, and mercy because he pays the penalty for our sin with his perfect life, his perfect death. It was poured out for us, so that we could be redeemed, so that the penalty would be paid, so that now when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see nasty Michael Powell building his own kingdom. He doesn't see fill in the blank with your name, but now he sees the blood of Jesus Christ that has been shed to cover us, so that when the Father looks at me, he says, Michael Powell approved. You can come and talk to me. You can be in relationship with me. He looks at me and he says, yes, come to me. Come into my presence. Come into my kingdom. Come be part of my name. Because in my name, in my kingdom, in my presence, there is joy. There is freedom. There is healing. But the good news of the gospel is that it doesn't stop there. Three days later, after Jesus is put into the ground, he rose again to life. So not only are we approved in this life, Not only when the Father looks at us, does he say, yeah, you're my son, because of the finished work of Jesus. But now we get to be with him for all of eternity, because Jesus Christ has conquered hell, death, the grave, and sin for us. That's really good news. Galatians chapter 5, the first six verses talk about how Jesus didn't live according to the law. It says, but it was because of faith and love that he lived for us so that we could live in the exact same way. So here, we see this love and mercy and grace of Jesus on display to this man, but it points to the love and mercy and grace that we're going to see on display on the cross. In the name of Jesus, there is healing. Jesus doesn't say, I did all of these things so that you could paint by numbers. He says, I did all of these things. I completed this work because I want your heart. I want your passion. I want a relationship with you. And I would ask us this morning. I would ask us right now is your greatest need for a more intimate relationship with Jesus? I would say it probably is. Because that's how we were made was to be in relationship with the creator of the universe. But do we always feel that? No. We feel that tug from these fleeting desires for our affections to go somewhere else. And Jesus says, my kingdom is here. Come be part. My presence is here. Come experience it with me. My freedom is here. In my name there is healing. I put a list of words up on the screen. Maybe, these, maybe you fall into one of these three categories, uh, and maybe these words describe you. The first set of words is this. Maybe your life feels this way, or you're like, man, I'm, I'm struggling. The presence of God does not feel real to me. I know that, my, that might be my, my, my deepest need, but here's the way that I feel. Here's what I'm experiencing. Maybe this, is, maybe this surmises your existence right now. Maybe your life feels mundane. Maybe you're overwhelmed with discouragement. Or despair, or worry, or you're even in the pit, the very bottom of depression. Can I tell you this? There is joy in the kingdom of Christ. His burden is light. His burden is light. Turn to Jesus. The Westminster Confession, it says, our what is the chief end of man? To know God and to experience Him fully. There's joy in the kingdom of Jesus. Here's the next set of maybe things that you would be identifying with. Does your life feel meaningless or directionless or a lack of purpose? Or you're just like, man, I'm just overall just weak. The truth of the second section here is that there is freedom in the presence of Jesus. And I thought, what's the, I thought, what's the opposite of freedom? You know, in our 21st century American minds, we automatically think slavery. But, but I think meaningless and directionless is the opposite of freedom. Because even in Christ, we're to live the way that he has commanded us to live. And with that, we find purpose. We find meaning. Meaning your greatest need is knowing the presence of Jesus more. That is your greatest need. That's our church's greatest need. That's your children's greatest need. That's this community's greatest need. That's the lost greatest need is knowing the presence of Jesus more. Lastly, here's the, next, here's the last set of, maybe these words describe you. You would describe your life as brokenness or as damage, neglect, Maybe you're just finished. Maybe there's an overwhelming sense of hopelessness that you can't seem to shake. Can I tell you this morning that there is healing in the name of Jesus? Whatever that looks like for you, you're just like, yeah, but you don't understand the situation. You you don't understand the situation with this man. He had had this affliction from the time that he was born, this withered hand. There is physical healing in the name of Jesus. There is mental healing in the name of Jesus. There is psychological healing in the name of Jesus. There is spiritual healing in the name of Jesus. The reason that Jesus heals physically this man, and we saw it earlier in chapter 5, we saw it in chapter 4, the reason that he does is to prove that he is healing us and forgiving us spiritually. Because we can see the physical, but we can't see the spiritual side of it. So Jesus heals this man to say, when I say that I'm going to heal you, it is true boom, withered hand be healed. Which one of those categories do you fall in this morning? Because all of these point to the Savior of the universe. And I would plead with you this morning that you would turn your desperation, whatever you are most desperate for, I pray that you would turn that desperation from your most pressing desire to your greatest need. Because your greatest need is knowing more the presence of Jesus, experiencing his love, his mercy, and his grace. And when you do that, friends, he's going to do more in and through you and for you than you could ever dream possible. Whatever you're struggling with, something that happened to you, something that you just can't shake, a particular sin, self-righteousness, Turn to Jesus.